119, exalting the Word of God. And I don't know of a better designation for this lengthy and beautiful psalm than that designation, exalting the Word of God, because virtually in every line, that's what we find, an exaltation of the Word of God. And yet exalting the Word without repetition as inspiration and only inspiration could do in talking or speaking so much about one subject, the Word, and yet doing so in such a beautifully varied way to give us insight and deeper appreciation into the power and the beauty of the Word of God. We mentioned before that this psalm is an acrostic psalm where the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are, are dealt with in a series of paragraphs, all of which contain eight verses. And as we come to verse 49 tonight, we enter another paragraph with another Hebrew letter, and each one of these verses, if we were reading in Hebrew, would begin with that same Hebrew letter. As we mentioned before, we don't know why the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to pen this psalm in that fashion. Perhaps it was a mnemonic device to help with the memorization of this beautiful and powerful psalm that depicts the Word of God in such a beautiful fashion. But nonetheless, it is written that way, and there is so much to glean from it. As I mentioned, as we are still early in the year, we're emphasizing this year, really, uh, for the most part, to a great extent, evidences for not only the existence of God, as we've just finished the series this morning on God's groundwork in Genesis, but also a reminder regularly of the power of the Word of God. As we go all the way through this psalm in a Sunday night series, we will be reminded in this psalm that contains 176 verses of the power and the inspiration of the Word of God. Is it important that we do that in any time? Of course it is. But I think it is especially significant and important in the times in which we find ourselves. As we discussed this morning in the article in the paper about the uh, humanistic group, the humanist group that was meeting this afternoon at 4 o'clock because they wanted to be together with those of like what? Faith? No. <laughs> no faith, tragically. And yet they wanted to be together in uniting against the power of the Word of God and refusing to believe in the Word of God. Sad indeed. But those are the times in which we find ourselves where atheism is really leveling a more frontal assault than it has ever leveled in my lifetime, and I'm sure you would agree in yours as well. And so we need to be reminded ourselves not only of the power of the Word of God, the obvious evidences for its inspiration, but we also need to be as well equipped as possible to reach out to those precious souls who have not embraced the Word of God and to encourage them to examine it openly and honestly and to ask open and honest questions of us who hopefully will be willing and able and ready always to give an answer to every man who asks a reason of the hope that is in us, and yet to do so with meekness and fear. 
There have been atheists who have ceased to be atheists. And certainly, we do not need to prejudge nor give up on any precious soul, but to do all that we can to live out in our lives our firm belief in the inspiration of Scripture and to be prepared to teach it to others. And so let's continue tonight and look at these eight verses from Psalm 49 through 56. And before we look at them individually, let's simply read them together, reading as usual from the New King James translation. Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This has become mine because I have kept your precepts. What a beautiful section of this beautiful psalm this is. As we go back to verse 49, the plea from the psalmist, and as we mentioned before, the author of the psalm is not identified. Many attribute it to David, but we cannot be absolutely sure. But we can attribute it, surely and certainly, to the Holy Spirit who inspired the writer of this psalm. And the plea here, and as we mentioned, there is indication that there was anguish and tribulation and trial that was occurring in the life of the inspired writer at this time. And the plea here in verse 49 is a plea to God to remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. It is not an expression of doubt in God and in God's promises, but simply a plea to God to remember the word to your servant. Remember your promises, and we can be assured that God's promises are certain, that God's promises are sure, and that God will remember his word. To us. Of course, at the time that the psalmist penned these words, it was not in its complete and final form as it is now. We're not anticipating or expecting any revelation from God in any other way other than that which has already been given to us and is recorded for us in its completeness and wholeness upon the pages of Holy Writ. But the plea of the psalmist was at a time when revelation was still being uh, given in ways uh, that uh, are not longer needed nor longer available to us today. Remember your promises. Remember your word to your servant. But notice this, upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. That's verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction, or your word has given me life. So in verses 49 and 50, notice the word. Notice the word and notice what is tied to the word. I've circled the phrase the word in verse 49. And then I circled the word hope in that same verse. And then in verse 50, I circled the word comfort. And then in the latter part of verse 50, I circled the word life. And in those two verses, we are reminded that 
the source of hope, the source of comfort, the source of life, spiritual life, all goes back to the Word of God. And it is a sobering reminder that without this Word, there is no hope. The only hope we have is through this Word. The only comfort we have, spiritually speaking, is through this Word. The only life we have that is eternal life, that is spiritual, that is everlasting, is through this Word. Remember, Jesus on more than one occasion said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Will find it. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. John 10, verse 10. He was speaking of spiritual life. When he spoke of living water, he was speaking of spiritual living water, spiritual life. But what is the source of that? The Lord is no longer with us, nor are any of the inspired writers who penned these words, but the words are. And it simply reminds us as we begin this section in these two verses that it is the Word that gives life. It is the Word that comforts in affliction. It is the Word that produces hope. And there is nothing else that can give us those and so many other beautiful qualities, joy and peace and so many other things that could be named. But then the psalmist turns his attention in verse 51 to the proud. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. We don't know to what the psalmist had specific reference, what persecution he may have been undergoing at this time, what kind of derision that he refers to here, but it is the case, and as I just cited a moment ago in the time in which we live, that the proud have the believer in great derision as perhaps at no other time. As I mentioned, atheism is, uh, is leveling a frontal assault. There are those who very proudly and openly deny the existence of God, deny the inspiration of His Word, deny the validity of Christianity, and who are not content to simply let you do your thing while they do their thing, but they want to invade and intimidate and attack and, if possible, destroy what we are seeking to do in living the Christian life, the proud. How much does God's Word have to say about the proud? A great deal. We could go over to the book of Proverbs, for example, and just simply look at several verses there and many more that could be cited both from the Old and from the New Testament, but just look at a few with me to remind ourselves of what God has to say in His Word about pride. If you go back to Proverbs 6 and verse 16 beginning, the words tell us these six things, these six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. What's the first one on the list? 
a proud look. A proud look. And then if you look at Proverbs 8 and verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Then keep turning in Proverbs over to chapter 15 of Proverbs in verse 25. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. And then look at Proverbs 16 and verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And then a little bit later in that same chapter, Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know, I could not help but think, as I studied these verses in reference to the proud, those like the atheists, those like the aggressive atheists, those like the evolutionists, those like those who in so many of our universities and our institutes of higher, institutions of higher learning are belittling and degrading anyone who would claim to have any belief in a higher power and who are pushing the theory of evolution and through the media and through various other sources, you, if you are a believer in the God of heaven and in Jesus Christ as his son and in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, you are among the most unenlightened who walk this earth in their view. And yes, tragically, tragically, even those who have left the truth from among us have looked down upon those who are still fundamental believers in the all-inspired Word of God, who have loosened the bands of God's Word and who have departed and who consider those who are still determined to not turn aside from the law, as the psalmist says, as legalists and those who have not yet been enlightened. And so from several fronts, tragically in today's world, we are confronted with those who pride themselves in a new enlightenment, in a philosophy or a way of thinking that they believe is far superior to that which is contained in this book. And the whole humanist movement is basically a movement that says, I am the end all. It is all about me. And me, man, Man can solve man's problems. I do not need a higher power. I do not need a God in my life. I do not need a restrictive word in my life. That's pride, tragically, that goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we need to fervently pray and plead and prepare to meet those in that situation and to do all that we can to help them to see the folly of that position because the scripture still says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The first part of that verse says. The proud have me in great derision, the psalmist writes, but no matter what the pressures are, no matter how much I am intimidated, the psalmist says, I do not turn aside from your law. And then he says, I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. As I read this verse, I couldn't help but think in reading the words, your judgments of old, about the relevance of the Bible, the Word of God, in every generation. The psalmist could write about the relevance of the Word of God in his life, and the revealed word that he had at this particular time and what it was able to do for him. And as long ago as the pages of Holy Writ were completed, before the first century had concluded, even that long ago to this moment in time, the relevance of this book is still there. There can be and is no other book that can make that claim of being relevant in every generation, anticipating and dealing with, in principle, if not in precept, every possible sin that could ever rear its head and give us full and complete con instruction as to how to deal with it and how to avoid it and how to live our lives. in a way that's pleasing to God. Your judgments of old. You know, there's something else to think about, about that phrase, the judgments of old. And that is literally the judgments of God against nations in former times can also be considered here in that indeed God has dealt with his enemies and the enemies of his people and that ultimately the victory is ours in Christ Jesus. In fact, in the Revelation letter, with the figurative language that is there and the various interpretations that have been put upon various aspects of that book, there is one theme that is absolutely clear and that permeates the pages of the book of Revelation, and that is victory. Victory is ours in Christ Jesus. Obviously, that book was written at a time when the Roman Empire had power that was unprecedented. Unprecedented and that no doubt many believe could never be toppled, never be brought down. Yet it was. And the book of Revelation said that it would be brought down. Just as God brought down Babylon and God brought down Assyria and God brought down Egypt and God brought down so many other nations and yes, even taking into captivity his own people when they rebelled against him time and again. The judgments of old should indeed sober the thinking of those who are living contrary to the will of God and indeed comfort those who are living for God despite whatever afflictions we may face and comfort us in the knowledge that ultimately, no matter what happens in the here and now, in the hereafter, victory belongs to to those in Christ. And then he says something that I think is particularly relevant to every time 
in which we find ourselves, and I think particularly in our time, and that is verse 53. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. What jumps out here? I think what jumps out is the attitude that we should have as God's people towards sin and that we must never be duped, never be warmed up like the frog in the kettle or whatever to the seriousness of sin to the point that we don't see it as we ought to see it and that we begin to excuse it or to ignore it or not to be so troubled by it as perhaps we once were. God's people, God's people should be troubled by sin. We've talked about this before in other lessons in relation to Lot, who, whom Peter says, in, who Peter says in 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with the unlawful deeds of those in Sodom where he lived. He, this righteous man, vexed his soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. He was horrified. He was indignant about their sin. And that's what the psalmist says here. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. He was in anguish. He was troubled by it. Did it destroy his joy in the Lord and the fact that he was a follower of God? No. But nonetheless, he agonized, as did Lot, over the sins of others. If you'll turn with me to Ezra, chapter 9, you're going to see a, a very clear example of the very thing that the psalmist is writing about here. In Ezra chapter 9, and this was at a time when Ezra was told that those people coming back from captivity had not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, etc. Verse 2 of Ezra 9 says, For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. The very leaders and rulers of God's people have been leading the way in sinning against God in this way, how did Ezra react to it? Listen to verse 3. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. That's how Ezra reacted to the sin of God's people at that time. Reminds us of what the psalmist writes here. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. And there are many passages, some of them right here, right here in this psalm, and we'll come to them, that remind us of the attitude that the child of God is to have toward sin. If you look at just one or two of them. Look over at 119, 104, the same psalm in 104. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Then you drop down to 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. 
And then you go over to 163, verse 163. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. We've mentioned before, the attitude of the sinner is to hate sin and love the sinner. And indeed, indeed, the word of God lends credence to that position. Indignation has taken hold of me because of the wicked who forsake your law. And then verse 54, the psalmist writes, Your statutes have been my songs. What a beautiful statement. Your statutes, another word for law. We mentioned, remember last time, how many words are used, different words to describe the law of God, the law, the statutes, the commandments, the ordinances, the precepts, all of these different words that are used to describe the law of God. Your statutes have been my what? Songs. That's indicative of someone who loves the word of God. And I couldn't help but think of the song, I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me, how he left his home in glory for the cross of Calvary. I will sing the wondrous story. Your statutes have been my songs. That's how much he delighted in the will of God. Tragically, with many today, they would have to say, your statutes have been my sorrow, because indeed, they do not delight in them, let alone even respect them or examine them. But notice the last part of verse 54. Where have those statutes been my songs? In the house of my what? Pilgrimage. Another reminder that we are on a pilgrimage here in this life. We are not at home. And that's what the psalmist reminds us. We are not at home. We're on a pilgrimage, and this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Pilgrimage, a sojourn. And then this statement, verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord. Similar statement is made. Back in Psalm 63. Look back at Psalm 63 for just a moment. And uh, verse 6 of Psalm 63. The psalmist there makes a very similar statement, and this is a psalm attributed to uh, David. He there writes, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. When I lie down at night, I meditate upon the statutes of the Lord, upon the name of the Lord. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. Then notice the last verse of our study tonight. This has become mine because I kept your precepts. This has become mine. This, has, this is my situation, in other words. What, what is my situation? Well, look at the verses. Your statutes have been my songs. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, the comfort he has written about, the indignation because of the wicked. All of this is attributable to the keeping of the precepts of God. 
I have all these things. I enjoy these blessings in the house of my pilgrimage, the comfort, the hope with which this paragraph begins back at verse 49. All of these things are mine because of one thing and one thing alone, and that is the keeping of the precepts of God. Another beautiful paragraph in a beautiful psalm that exalts the Word of God in such a beautiful way. As we close tonight, we ask this, have you obeyed that Word? Not the law about which the psalmist wrote at the time we're studying now, because that was the law of Moses. But isn't that interesting, and doesn't it speak to the relevance about which we spoke a few moments ago, that even at a time when a different law was in effect, There's so much that we can glean and learn in principle about the law to which we are amenable today, the law of Christ, from reading about the times under that previous law and one who obviously loved it with all of his heart. What about you? Can you say with the psalmist that the blessings have become yours, the blessings that are spiritual blessings because you keep his precepts, those of the New Testament? If not, our fervent plea is that you'll obey the gospel tonight so that you can indeed leave here in effect saying with the psalmist, your statutes are my songs. All of these blessings are now mine. The spiritual blessings that are those who are in Christ, those are now mine because I'm in Christ. How? By a belief in Christ that leads you to repent of your sins. Confess him as the Christ and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. We plead with you to do that if you haven't, to come home to your first love and to the word that you once loved, if that is your need tonight as a wayward child of God. As we stand to sing, will you come?